0: Welcome back to 10 and 20, the official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust, where we talk about interesting aspects of Tennessee history in roughly 20 minutes. My name's Brad.
1: And my name's Sarah. Today, we are talking to Dr. Tim Johnson from Lipscomb University, one of the leading scholars on the Mexican-American War, and we're going to talk to him about the Mexican-American War.
0: <laughs> we'll also talk about Tennessee's role within the war and different Tennesseans who were involved, such as our very own Moscow Carter and how their experiences led up towards the Civil War. So how did, you, how did you find yourself interested in history, and especially this time period that we're talking about today? Well, I, I
2: grew up in Chattanooga near the Chickamauga Battlefield, and that was a favorite haunt of mine. So I was always interested in the Civil War and, um, and studied Civil War in graduate school at, um, at University of Alabama, but my, uh, my major professor told me for a dissertation, I should think about doing Winfield Scott. Scott's career ends at the Civil War, but he had a 53 year career that goes way back to the War of 1812. So, so I did a biography of Scott, and Scott's the, sort of the pinnacle of his career was the Mexican American War in the 1840s. And so, 25 years ago, researching that part of Scott's life. I was just fascinated with the Mexican-American War and I kept running across names of future Civil War generals who fought in Mexico. And so I've done three or four books on the Mexican War. Uh, I had never really thought about um, researching and writing about Tennesseans who went to Mexico until a few years ago When I heard uh, Captain Jim Page from Fort Campbell talk about some skeletal remains that had been found in Monterey, Mexico, in construction projects just in recent years, 2004, 2009, 2011, on several occasions, and because of the military buttons and the U.S. coins found at those sites, they knew right away that these were American soldiers, from the Battle of Monterey, which was fought in September 1846. And so when I, heard, when I heard about those skeletal remains, and there was an ongoing effort to bring those bones back to the United States, and I was immediately interested because I'd already spent years doing research on the Mexican War. And I thought, Tennesseans, there's a, there's a story there, and no one has ever told a story about some of these Tennesseans. I knew some of the names uh, because they're going to pop up later in the Civil War. So anyway, I spent a few years working on uh, d- doing research for this book. Uh, meanwhile, the effort to bring those skeletal remains was ongoing, and um, the skeletal remains came back to Dover Air Force Base in September eighteen uh, in September twenty sixteen. We do that all the time when you work
1: in a history field. You always.
0: Used the wrong <laughs> century. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: Yes,
1: your mind stuck in the past
2: sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but ironically, they came back on the 170th anniversary of the date that they died. Wow. So, and, you know, Dover is the military mortuary. And so those bones, now two and a half years later, those bones are still at Dover. And uh, I'm involved in an effort mostly with uh, MTSU uh, anthropologists and historians trying to identify the bones because... The location of the burial sites in Monterey is right where the first Tennessee volunteers were fighting during the battle, and we have an account from one Tennessean who said we buried uh, we buried our losses uh, right where they fell. Hmm. So we think there's a pretty good chance that we may have some Tennessee volunteers uh, represented in these skeletal remains. But the big mystery is, you know, how, if we can get them identified, and 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 we are. Um, we're sort of to the point where uh, some DNA tests are being done right now.
0: So it was it was that discovery that, because you were already interested in this field, but it was that discovery that got you interested in the Mexican War in particular. Well, it was that discovery that got me interested in the Tennesseans.
2: Okay. So I had already done, for example, um, in 2007, I did a book called A Gallant Little Army, which mm-hmm. was the Mexico City Campaign, 1847, a six-month military campaign. And I had edited a couple of Mexican War Diaries. Daniel Harvey Hill, who's a well-known Confederate general, uh, D.H. Hill, kept a diary in Mexico. And uh, it was a very detailed diary. And, and I had co-edited that diary um, probably 15 years ago now. So, so I had already been working in the Mexican War. But Tennesseans, this is my first uh, foray into, into really state history, looking at the Tennessee volunteers. And there were, there were um, almost 5,500 Tennesseans who volunteered and ended up going to Mexico to fight in, in six different uh, regiments. Oh, wow. What was How is that compared to other states? Um, Illinois had quite a few, uh, a comparable number of volunteers, but in comparison, uh, South Carolina had one regiment, Virginia had one regiment, New York had one regiment, Pennsylvania, two regiments of volunteers, uh, Alabama had one regiment of volunteers. So most states are going to provide one, maybe two regiments of volunteers, but Tennessee... Uh, uh, provided six regiments, one mounted, five infantry, uh, totaling
0: almost 5,500 men. I have to assume that compared to the state's total population makes it even greater, because I have to imagine a lot of those East Coast states, the population is much yes. greater. That's yeah.
2: true. That's true. And um, and plus, the war was actually... Um, or popular, a little more popular in the southern states than it was in the northern states anyway. There, there was a, a bit of an anti-war movement during the Mexican War, and it was sort of anti-Polk, President Polk, another Tennessean. Hmm. And uh, uh, anti—the uh, the thinking uh, was that, you know, the war with Mexico was a war of expansion, westward expansion, manifest destiny— James K. Polk had run as an expansionist president. And so the conventional wisdom was, well, you know, Polk's a Southerner. Um, He's interested in expanding the territory West to open up more territory for slaves. This was a pro-slavery war. That was kind of conventional wisdom. And to be sure, there were politicians and policymakers in Washington that were thinking, uh, who were thinking about the expansion of slavery as a uh, sort of a byproduct of a territorial expansion in the 1840s. However, when I did my research for this book, I found that the average Tennessean never really talked about, or in their letters and diaries, they didn't write about slavery or a slave interest. They wrote about duty and honor and my country has called, and so I must step forward and and fulfill my uh, role as a, as a citizen. And so, in fact, that's where the title of the book comes from, For Duty and Honor, because that's really the way the rank-and-file Tennesseans saw this as, a, as an obligation to step forward and fight.
1: Is this part of the way that Tennessee does earn, like, the nickname The Volunteer State?
2: Yes, it, it, it is, you know. The previous generation had, um, a, a lot of young men had turned out and volunteered to fight with Andrew Jackson in the War of 1812. But it's in the Mexican-American War where we really begin to see that term, the volunteer state, um, mentioned uh, for the first time, and especially in print. The uh, The National Union, which is a, a newspaper published in Washington, D.C., wrote an article in 1847. That's the second year of the war. Uh, The National Union published an article about the Tennesseans, and the title of the article was The Volunteer State. And so that's one of the earliest mentions in print of Tennessee as as a volunteer state. So the state solidifies that nickname in the
0: 1840s. I I definitely want to get more into Tennessee's role in the war, but do you think before we get more into the details, could you give us and I know this is probably really difficult to do, but a general overview of why the war started and what it accomplished.
1: And when it is.
2: The war began in May 1846 when the U.S. Congress declared war, and it lasted until February 1848. So, 46 to 48. Um, The 1840s was really a decade of what we call manifest destiny, westward expansion, The western border of the United States uh, at that time, prior to the war, went right up to Texas. Texas was the Republic of Texas. It had won its independence from Mexico a decade earlier, the Alamo and Sam Houston and all, all of that from the 1830s. When James K. Polk ran for president in 1844, he ran as an expansionist. And there had been talk of annexing Texas since Texas won its independence. Polk promised to to do that. When when Polk was elected president, he fulfilled his promises. He he may be the only president who ever did all that he said he would do. And so, Texas was actually uh, was annexed in 1845. At least the process began in 45. Actually, John Tyler, President Tyler, started that process just days before he left office. But it, it came to Polk once he was inaugurated to, um, to to finish up the process of annexation. Well, there was a border dispute. There had always been a border dispute between Texas and Mexico. And the Texans argued that the Rio Grande is the border. Well, now what was a Texas-Mexico border dispute becomes a United States-Mexico
0: hmm.
2: border dispute. And a lot of people think that Polk uh, sort of, acted provocatively and helped instigate the war over over the border so the war begins uh, as a result of a of a clash on the Rio Grande in April 46 Polk asked for a declaration of war war is declared the following month so we go to war we fight a war that lasts a little less than two years in a lot of ways it was a um, it was a war that kind of gave some hints about how the Civil War is going to be fought. You have over 300 future Civil War generals who fought in Mexico. A lot of names that, that Civil War buffs would immediately recognize who served as lieutenants, mostly captains, colonels in Mexico. So it was really kind of a training ground for the Civil War. When it ended, the United States got a huge land session from Mexico 525,000 square miles were transferred from Mexico to the United States as a result of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which is the treaty that ended the war. So we're talking about not only do we annex Texas, which was the immediate predicate to going to war, but then under the terms of the treaty, we get what is today New Mexico, Arizona, California, um, Nevada, part of Colorado— We get a big chunk of land from Mexico as a result of the war.
0: And, of course, that all just speeds up our national push towards civil war afterwards.
2: It does. All all the new territory meant, it it raises the preeminent question in the mid-19th century. If we have new land, new territories being carved out, which will eventually become states, what does that mean with regard to slavery? Will these be new slave states? Uh, will sla- slavery be prohibited in those states? So yeah, it really amplifies the slavery issue, and it kind of puts the country on a fast track because you know we're, gonna up, uh, we're gonna going to end up we're going to go
0: into war just a dozen years later, in, in, in a civil war. So why all these Tennesseans? What what do you think motivated them to go off to fight in this war? As I mentioned earlier, a lot of them, a lot of them, just saw it as their
2: duty. I I, I ran into numerous references, some of these volunteers, these young guys in eighteen forty-six, continually referring to their fathers when my father fought with Andrew Jackson in the last war. So many of them had 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 fought against the Creek Indians or had fought in New Orleans with Jackson during the War of eighteen twelve, and so they're thinking, you know, my father. Did it. My father's generation stepped forward. My country's at war again. Now it's my turn. It's kind of a generational obligation to, to show that. Uh, well, he, here's one quote from a volunteer from Jackson, Tennessee. In, um, in a letter home, he wrote this We had all her- heard and read of such days in history, he's referring back to their fathers and the War of 1812. We had all heard and read of such days in history and thirsted for an opportunity to show that the iron-hearted fortitude and indomitable courage of our ancestors had not degenerated in their sons. So they felt it was their duty. They had to do it.
1: And with Tennessee's long ties like North Carolina and Virginia, uh, do you think it even dates back to the Revolutionary War? If their fathers fought in the War of 1812, maybe their grandfathers fought in the Revolutionary War?
2: That That's a good point, and you're right about that. Because... What really uh, motivated a lot of the, uh, a lot of these fathers who had fought with Andrew Jackson was the fact that their fathers had also fought in the Revolution. Many of them were North Carolinians or Virginians, and as, as you're well aware, you know when the Revolutionary War was over, Tennessee is settled largely by Revolutionary War veterans uh, who are coming over with land grants mm-hmm. that they get as a result of their service in the revolution. So, so you know, you, you basically you have grandfathers who fought in the revolution, fathers who fought in the War of 1812, and now the sons who say, it's my generation's yeah. turn and we're going to
0: step it's forward. It's interesting. The, the house that we are in right now, Cardington, was built on land that was originally a Revolutionary yeah. War land, land grant. grant.
2: That's right. And and that's the case all through Middle Tennessee. I think a lot of, a lot of folks today would be surprised... They did a little bit of digging. Be surprised to find out how many historic homes like this are here because of Revolutionary War land grants.
0: What about the breakdown of different areas in Tennessee and how they supported the war? Because I know by the time of the Civil War, it was very sectional. Different areas were very clear about which side they were supporting, or maybe I should say, which side they did not want to support. Was it the same in the Mexican War prior to it? You do find a, a
2: breakdown by the three grand divisions of the state. Middle Tennesseans in 1846-47 tended to to support the war with Mexico in greater numbers if you're looking at the number of volunteers, more volunteers came from Middle Tennessee but you know West Tennessee and East Tennessee did contribute quite a few uh, volunteers just not as not as many as as um, as the middle part of the state You, you could look at the slavery, uh, question and, and and say that, you know, maybe that indicates that there would be some, uh, at least in, indirect connection between slavery, those families who owned slaves, and, and,
0: and those who ended up volunteering to fight in Mexico? Well, I feel like by the time of the Civil War, many people understood that the cause of the Civil War was the issue of slavery. Maybe that wasn't their primary motive for going off to war themselves, but they understood that that was what led to this war. Was it the same in the Mexican War? Did people have that understanding about why that war happened? Or was it more of a, you know, just my country's going off to war, I go off to war too?
2: I think, I'm not sure how how closely in touch they might have been with the, the slavery question, but I know this, they were very much in touch with the issue of land. I mean, today we think about you know, when when we get out of school and and we're ready to begin our career, we think about what's the salary going to be, how much money, that's how we measure prosperity and wealth. But 150, 200 years ago, it was measured with land. And so I think the overriding issue with them was, you know, there's land at stake here. And land means wealth and land means opportunity. And it had been that way for several generations by the time we get to the the uh, mid-19th century. But that slavery issue, which had been really sort of hounding and dogging political issues for several decades, then really becomes accentuated because of the war. What about um, what about notable Tennesseans who fought in the war? Of course, you have um, people like uh, William Campbell, who was a colonel and who commanded the uh, uh, First Tennessee. Uh, you have Benjamin Franklin Cheatham, who is a company commander in Mexico, he goes on to become a fairly prominent Confederate general. Find the Battle so yeah, of Franklin. I was
0: say he was here? He was here <laughs> at
2: Franklin. He was in all the major battles of the Western mm-hmm. Theater, except uh, I'm not sure if he was in Jonesboro or not. But but at any rate, uh, he's there for all of them. So Cheatham makes a name for himself in Mexico. Gideon Pillow was in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Gideon Pillow is uh, a very pr- prominent. Civil War name and kind of a villain to a lot of people because of what happened at Fort Donaldson. And by the way, Pillow, had, uh, Pillow was a brave man. He put himself in harm's way, uh, but Pillow was a military novice, and he was already demonstrating in Mexico his uh, lack of competence on the battlefield, should we say. So, But um, Cheatham, Pillow, George Maney uh, fought in Mexico. There's a man named Thomas Claiborne who was a Nashvilleian who fought in Mexico and who will be a uh, colonel in the Confederate Cavalry under uh, Forrest and Joe Wheeler um, in the Civil War. So there are a number of prominent names. Uh, Adolphus Hyman fought in Mexico. He was in the first Tennessee. Um, Hyman will become probably Nashville's most prominent architect in the 1850s, uh, especially in a Greek revival architecture. He designed the Belmont Mansion. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did St. Mary's Catholic Church, which is on the corner of Charlotte and Fifth Avenue. He did the Giles County Courthouse in Pulaski. So he, he did some prominent buildings. Some of them still stand today. But then he he was captured at Fort Donaldson. He, he became uh, sick in a Union POW camp and died uh, before the Civil War ended.
0: Were there any particular engagements that Tennesseans fought in or had a decisive hand in during the war? Yes, Uh, two
2: that immediately come to mind. The first one is the Battle of Monterey in September 1846. This was under Zachary Taylor. The first year of the war, most of the major battles occurred in northern Mexico. Zachary Taylor commanded the U.S. Army there. The first Tennessee volunteers participated— in what, the Battle of Monterey,
1: which not to interrupt, I want to say that is the regiment that Moscow is a part yes. of too. Mm-hmm.
2: That's right. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Moscow Carter was in the First mm-hmm. Tennessee. He, um, I think, he was in Company B.
1: Yes, he was in Company B. Okay.
2: Mm-hmm. The members of the First Tennessee made this gallant charge at a Mexican fort, which was lo- back then it was located on the northeast corner of Monterey. La Tanaría was the name of the fort, and the Tennesseans. Along with Jefferson Davis's First Mississippi, those two regiments captured La Teneria. and so that's really what uh, helps the the First Tennessee kind of kind of make a name for itself after after that attack during the Battle of Monterey. They're going to be called the Bloody First. They suffered they lost twenty seven men at Monterey. I think that's more than any other unit in the battle, whether it's a volunteer unit or regular army. And Colonel Campbell actually comes back home after, uh, uh, after serving in the war, and he gets elected governor a couple of years after the war is over. And, and one of the campaign slogans was, follow me, boys, to kind of remind voters that he led the charge at La Teneria. At the Battle of Monterey, so you got you got the Battle of Monterey. That's where the skeletal remains were found. By the way, all around where the the Tannery Fort used to be at that time, it's not there anymore. I was there last year, a year ago, this month. I was in Monterey. There's like a ten story building sitting where the uh, Tannery Fort used to be. But um, a few months later, now now the Tennessee uh, regiments, about half of. Zachary Taylor's army, actually, was transferred from Taylor's command to Winfield Scott's command. Scott landed an army at Veracruz on the coast of Mexico in March 1847, and that started his, what we now know as the Mexico City Campaign. And the first major battle, as Scott's army is marching inland, was the Battle of Cerro Gordo. And it's at Cerro Gordo where the second Tennessee Volunteers get their chance at glory, they make an important attack on a Mexican position, and they're beaten back. It did not go well. It didn't go well primarily because of Gideon Pillow, who was the overall commander of that of that uh, part of the battlefield. So the 2nd Tennessee... Has it's one moment, it's one opportunity for glory, and and it turns out to be a, a lifelong embarrassment, and mm. they come back. and And the commander of the Second Tennessee was a man named William Haskell, a very promising young attorney from Jackson, Tennessee, and and the war changed his life. His his he, he would only have a few years left when he got back home, but his life would be very different after the war. And I think you can probably trace much of that to. The losses that he suffered in terms of friends and family, and 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 the change that the war made in him.
0: Well, and of course that's a that's a topic that we've talked about a little bit. The the idea of men dealing with the trauma of war for years afterwards, which yeah. I'm sure we'll get more into in a, at a later date. But yeah, yeah. But that leads into an interesting thought because correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like this was the first time our country. Um, sent men off to an unknown area to fight. I guess, like t- technically speaking, they weren't fighting in a foreign country because mm-hmm. we believe we were fighting. Well, I guess we were. Well, fighting is we in Mexico. Yes, yeah, we are. We, right. we are. It is. It is our first mm-hmm. foreign war. Right. You're right about that. So, how did that affect people? Was the mentality of we're sending our boys to another country to fight somewhere? You else? know,
2: in in a way, I mean, it it was not a negative. I don't think. In a way, it was. It it kind of added to the whole idea of an adventure. Mm-hmm. This is the first foreign war. Now, when, when you look back at, for example, the War of 1812, there were a few brief excursions by American forces into Canada, but they were, they were temporary. And, um, but, but in terms of, of classifying something as a foreign war, um, in, in a sense, this was a kind of an expeditionary force being sent to, another co- to invade another country. The Mexican War is the first foreign war. You have American troops, uh, American armies operating on foreign soil for an extended period of time. It's also the first experience that Americans are going to have with urban warfare, and that was the Battle of Monterey. Much of Monterey was an urban battle. Same is going to be true the following year when Scott's army gets to Mexico City. There was some urban fighting in the streets of of Mexico City. So there are a lot of firsts associated militarily. You have what was called the flying artillery, which was kind of a new innovation. By the eighteen forties, there was no new equipment or no new ordnance. It's just it. It was a doctrinal difference because the army now uh, discovered that if you if you hitch horses to these cannon. And, uh, you know, if, if the men are trained, uh, you, you know, you can actually move artillery all around the battlefield in the middle of, of an engagement. So it was called flying artillery. By the way, the first officer to be killed in the Mexican-American War was uh, Major Ringgold. And he was uh, one of these sort of innovators that had helped bring the flying artillery about. Ringgold, that's, that, that's uh, who Ringgold, Georgia is named hmm. for, okay. which is just south of... Chattanooga. Most people who live in Ringo do not know that their town was named for a Mexican War officer.
1: Do you think that some of these tactics like flying artillery then lead into how the U.S. and the Confederate armies operate during the Civil War?
2: I think the Mexican War is a huge influence on Civil War generalship because what these young officers are learning in Mexico, and I'm talking about 20-something-year-old uh, 30-something-year-old, mostly lieutenants, the Grants, the McClellans, the Jacksons, the Beauregards, uh, the Johnstons, the Lees. Robert E. Lee was a captain in Mexico. All these young guys, here's what they're learning in Mexico. The way to win a battle is to go on the offensive, attack. Because the U.S. Army was, was almost always the aggressor on the offensive in Mexico. The Battle of Buena Vista is one exception to that in February 1847 when Taylor's army was fighting on the defensive the whole time. But for the most part, these young officers are learning that the bayonet attack, the bayonet charge, attack, offensive, be the aggressor on the battlefield, that's how you dictate the course of a battle, and that's how you gain an advantage over your opponent. But here's the big problem that that creates the smoothbore musket was still the standard infantry weapon in Mexico. And a smoothbore had an effective range of maybe 150 yards. In the decade or so between the Mexican War and the Civil War, the rifled musket replaced the smoothbore musket. And so by the time you get to 1861, and both sides are now you know, putting together army, huge armies, armies that are a size uh, that, that's unprecedented, but now they're, they're mostly armed with rifled muskets. A rifle has an effective range of 600 yards, six or 700 yards, can kill a man from 1,000 yards. So here's the problem. You've got officers who now are using the tactics that they observed in Mexico that worked so beautifully. Go on the attack, you know, line up in these linear formations, fix bayonets, attack the enemy line. And that's okay when the enemy has smoothbores. Right.
0: Maybe they can get one
2: shot off. Maybe they can get a shot off while you're making that last 100-yard dash. But with a rifled musket now, like right here at Franklin, uh, now Confederate attackers are being cut down from 200, 300, 500 Mm -hmm. yards away, and your line is decimated before you even— Over 90% of the Civil War wounds were inflicted by muskets. They were musket balls. Something, uh, bayonet wounds constituted, I don't remember exactly, something like 2 or 3% of all Civil War wounds. And that tells us that those old tactics that had worked a decade and a half earlier, the bayonet as a shock weapon,
0: it's not working in the 1860s. So what about people who were opposed to the war? I'm sure there are people who didn't like the fact that we were pushing a war into foreign soil and sending our soldiers over there. You're right. Um,
2: there was a very strong anti-war sentiment, especially in New England. Uh, much of it was religious-based, and by that I mean abolitionist-based. The the folks who were opposed to slavery, by and large, were opposed to this war because they made the connection: more land means more space for yeah, slaves. More land in
0: yeah. the South, yeah. in particular. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm.
2: So, so you have a, a fairly robust uh, anti-war sentiment in the North. In the South, Southerners tended to support Polk's war policy a little bit more. However, you can find some pockets of resistance. There were those who opposed the war, uh, even in the South, even in Tennessee. I found in my research a couple of things that I'll mention. There, there was, in Tennessee and in places in the South, uh, religious sentiment, pacifists. Kind of coming out of the um, coming out of the Second Great Awakening, kind of the, the, this sort of Southern Restoration movement, where um, there were folks who who taught, spoke, preached in opposition to the war, just because war and killing is evil. But then there were also some who were opposed to the war. Not, not so much from a religious perspective but they they did see the immorality of invading a foreign country and taking uh you know thousands of square miles of of that country for example I mentioned William Haskell a few minutes ago from Jackson Tennessee he comes back uh, and, and by the way these volunteers uh typically they they did a 12month enlistment so they're they're volunteering for a year they go in in May and June 1846 they come out and May and June 1847, at least the first round. There will be more Tennesseans that will volunteer in the second year of the war and will go back to Mexico. But Haskell, the 1st Tennessee, 2nd Tennessee, those two regiments, they all came back in the summer of 47, right after the Battle of Cerro Gordo. Haskell came back damaged, changed, bitter, and he immediately ran for Congress as an anti-war candidate. Hmm. Haskell goes around speaking um, in his campaign, calling the war with Mexico immoral and
0: unjust, and he got elected to Congress. That reminds yeah. me. Well, uh, that reminds me uh, of people who fought in like Vietnam, and mm-hmm. a lot of them went on to become politicians mm-hmm. afterwards as well. That's what it reminded me of too. They they come back different. I mean, and, every war, I'm sure, but yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. And
1: you said he's from East Tennessee, from Jackson.
2: He's he, uh, Jackson West. West two, Tennessee, two, sorry, two, that's two something. hours west of here. Yeah,
1: yeah. West of West yeah. Tennessee. Okay, yeah. that's interesting.
2: Here's what changed Haskell He's, he's a regimental commander at Cerro Gordo, and his regiment didn't do well in the battle. But in addition to that, his sister's fiance was was with his unit. Hale was his last name, H-A-L-E. He, he had made him his adjutant because he, he wanted to keep him close to He wanted to kind of watch out for him because, you know, my sister's going to marry this guy. i got to get this boy back home safe. He died at Cerro Gordo. Haskell's closest schoolmate, closest friend growing up in Jackson, died at the Battle of Cerro Gordo, Thomas Ewell. You all will will probably know Thomas's Mm -hmm. brother, Richard Ewell, who was a Confederate general and is sometimes kind of used as a scapegoat at Gettysburg. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Thomas Ewell uh, died at Cerro Gordo. William Haskell had at least seven other friends from the Jackson, Tennessee area. Uh, who were killed in that battle. And so he comes home having suffered these losses. Plus, a Tennessee newspaper wrote this about the second Tennessee experience at Cerro Gordo. It said, for the first time in history, a uh, a Tennessee unit has been forced to retreat. You know, what does that do to your psyche if... And a lot of these young men were motivated to go off to war because, man, I'm going to come home a hero. and in an honor-driven culture like the 19th century, doing something like this and, ha- and coming home uh, having served honorably, being a hero, that could mean all kinds of things in terms of professional opportunity. Some of these guys will get into politics. Some of these guys are going to get to marry their sweetheart because they're, they're coming home a hero. You know, it, it, It's that sort of thing. Well, if you don't come home a hero, in fact, if you come home embarrassed, having been shamed, can just imagine what that would do
1: yeah that's such an interesting point because i know your book talks like a lot about that you referenced some of my favorite historians like bertram brown in your book i yeah. um, talking about that whole like consistent southern honor and culture that they had here and it, i guess i never really thought about that before that with the second tennessee coming home just how much it would affect how these men view themselves yeah. not only i risk my life mm-hmm. and yeah.
0: you're basically more or less making fun yeah. of me yeah yeah
1: and and you know
2: these guys, the second, remember uh, the second Tennessee. I mean, the, the people still you know respected them, and and you know they tried not to give them such a hard time. But still, it's it's different. It's just it's it's different. Haskell becomes an alcoholic. I mean, he's he's going to suffer some from some very classic PTSD symptoms before it was called mm-hmm. PTSD. I and mean, he dies a young man. He dies at age forty of alcoholism. He's in an insane asylum when he dies. Uh, so that's a tragic case. And um, in other cases, by the way, talking about battlefield trauma, I, that, that reminds me of the case of another man. This one from the first Tennessee Volunteers, guy from, uh, a guy from Smith County. His name was Richard uh, Gifford, and he was wounded at Monterey, serious wound. A musket ball went into his upper thigh close to the hip. Probably would have been a little bit like the wound that uh, John Bell Hood suffered at Chickamauga. But they couldn't, they couldn't extract the musket ball. The guy, within a couple of weeks, became irrational. It kind of went crazy. The doctors called it derangement. He became deranged. Mm-hmm. That's what the medical records said. So what do they do with him? They, they had to put a guard on him because he was threatening to kill people with knife or musket or whatever he could get his hands on. They ended up discharging him, sending him home. This is, you know, the government doesn't have any resources to take care of soldiers like this. Uh, the army's not going to, doesn't know what to do with him. Send him home, let the family deal with him. He lives in this condition for about two years. His family's having to deal with it. And they w- they resorted to tying him down yeah. on the bed. And ultimately, they had to lock him up in the county jail. He had become, his, here's what his wife put on the um uh, when she was applying for a survivor's pension, uh, later she wrote that he became quote a raving maniac. He died in the in the Smith County Jail twenty five months after his discharge. So wow. he lived two years suffering like this. Um, so you know these are kind of those those hidden lost stories that we don't really read much about prior to the twentieth century.
0: Why do you think it is that for many people don't know much about the Mexican-American War? I feel like a lot of people, when they think, if you were to ask them, like, list list the wars that we were involved in as a country, they'd be like, Revolutionary War, Civil War, World War One. Like, you just jump from yeah. those to those. Why do you think that some of those, especially the Mexican-American War, get left out?
1: And some of the other, yeah, like 1812, the Spanish-American yeah. War, which yeah. is different from the Mexican-American yeah. War, right?
0: Yeah, these, especially the three that
2: you've, just mentioned, War of 1812, Mexican-American War, Spanish-American War. To a certain extent, they were kind of unpopular. Spanish-American War was another a war fought in the 1890s during kind of an expansionist period. And and the folks who were opposed to that war were called the anti-imperialist. We don't want to be imperialists like European countries. So, these wars tend to be unpopular at the time, and they continue to be unpopular in the years that follow. The Mexican-American War was that way as well. A lot of people looked at it and said, look, Ulysses S. Grant, who was a lieutenant in the Mexican War, fought at Monterey and, and fought all, all through the Mexico City campaign in 1847. But years later, uh, Grant, in his memoirs, called the Mexican War an unjust war, an immoral war. Uh, even some of the soldiers recognized that. So, so you've got that aspect being unpopular. But I think the biggest reason why most Americans know little or nothing about this particular conflict is because it's only a decade or so later that it that it becomes completely obscured in in the huge shadow of the Civil War. There were veterans who came home from Mexico thinking that they had just participated in what would be the great epic event of the 19th century. Oh, this will be remembered forever. And then a dozen years later along comes the civil war mm-hmm. and it just it just overshadowed everything that came before mexican mm-hmm. war veterans didn't get a pension congress didn't approve a pension until the 1880s wow wow that's
1: a long uh-huh. time after even the civil war veterans were getting pensions yes mm-hmm. that's correct and their widows and their dependents
2: and, and there and there are a few reasons for that but w- one prominent reason was that members of congress especially northern members of congress were reluctant to give a pension to Mexican War veterans, especially Southern Southerners who were Mexican War veterans, who also had fought with the Confederacy mm. because they were afraid. This is kind of a back doorway of giving a pension to Confederate veterans. So that was part of a holdup. But I will say this. One, of the, uh, one member of Congress who introduced the pension bill and who helped fight for a pension was a former Union officer in the Civil War named James Negley. Fort Negley up in Nashville is named for him, but Negley had also been a Pennsylvania volunteer in Mexico, and in fact, his unit also participated in the Battle of Cerro Gordo, where the Second Tennessee fought. So, I will mention, and most people are completely unaware of this, there was a, 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 Metra, a Mexican War veterans reunion held in Nashville in 1884. It was a three day reunion. Uh, several hundred veterans came from all over the country. They had a barbecue at Belle Mead. They had a bicycle race at the fairgrounds. Um, <laughs> Which
1: is funny because most of these men would have been quite
2: pretty old, old yeah. by this yeah. time. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, this is 40 years after the war. These guys are in their 60s, but they all went to pay their respects to Sarah Polk, who was still alive. She had been a widow for 40 years or so by that time. But I'm just trying to imagine a bicycle in the 1880s, a bicycle race. It had to be those big right. wheel, those old <laughs> Big one in front, bi- little one behind. But what a novelty that would have been for these yeah. guys sure. to, to watch that. So Tennesseans are still involved in trying to um, to foster a memory of the Mexican-American War for decades. And I closed the book with a, um, a little sort of anecdote about Moscow Carter. Mm-hmm. Who was engaged in some correspondence, uh, in 1906. He and, uh, a company commander named William Walton were engaged in correspondence. They were talking about trying to gather old rosters from the first Tennessee volunteers. And Moscow, uh, writes him back. Uh, Walton had written, said, do you have any rosters of any of the, any of the guys that you fought with in Mexico? He writes back and says that he thinks he's the only living Member uh, left of his company, Company B. And he lived another, he lived till 1913. Uh, yeah, he was he, like 80 yeah. in the time
0: that you're talking about.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I have a couple of pictures of Moscow Carter in the book one when he was a younger man, and then one, one when he's pretty advanced in years.
1: more about everything we've talked about with Tim today, you can check out his book for duty and for honor at our online store, store.boftboft.org.
0: As always, follow us on Instagram at 10and20podcast 10 T-E-N-N-I-N 20 podcast tennin i n two zero podcast or you could send us an email, the email address is podcast at B-O-F-T dot org. You could also stop in for a tour at Carter House or Carnton. you might even get Sarah or me as your tour guide
1: you never know. We just last week, two weeks ago, had a young girl, a young fan come in and we were super excited to be able to have her let us know that people are out there listening. It means a lot to us.
0: As always, thank you so much for listening.